from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, OSU professor Caritha Mitchell will discuss playwright Amiri Baraka, part of our collaboration with Hopeton Hay and Blacklit Radio. Then, the winner of the Kip Journey School and Writer's Talk contest, Lonnie Stuckey, will read his winning essay. And finally, Chris Pavoni, recent Thurber House guest, will discuss his novel, The Expats. Stay tuned. Welcome to Black Lit Radio with Professor Caritha Mitchell. And Caritha, welcome back to KAZI Book Review. Thanks so much for having me. Caritha, we're going to be talking today about The Dutchman, a play written by African-American playwright Amiri Baraka, but he actually wrote that book, or at least he wrote that play in March of 1964 when his name was still Leroy Jones. Why did you decide you wanted to talk about this play? I actually am really interested in Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka, partly because, you know, this play especially um, kind of represents the black arts movement. And I think it's really worth looking back at that time period um, now that we're in what so many people are calling the, um, you know, Barack Obama era. And it seems to me that because the black arts movement was kind of the artistic arm of the black power movement, this is a really good time to look back at that time period. One reason for my personal interest is that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing as a professor of English who specializes in African American literature without the black power movement and the black arts movement. And so there are many ways in which it seems to me that um, Baraka represents that moment and it's worth looking back at. Um, One of the reasons I'm so interested in it, especially in this um, age of Obama, is because when I look back at plays like The Dutchman and even other writers of his same time period, like James Baldwin or Sonia Sanchez or Intezaki Shange, there's a certain kind of boldness in what they have to say that we're not seeing today. And you would think that, okay, here we are with this quote-unquote black president, Uh, And you would think that there would be more room for public discourse around these issues. But instead, um, some of the things that Baraka says in The Dutchman and some of those other black arts artists are saying are things you would never hear today in the public discourse. And that distinction, I think, is worth us pausing and thinking about. Yeah, it's especially interesting. It's set on a subway in New York City, and it uh, revolves around a 30-year-old white woman, Lula, and a 20-year-old black male, Clay, with uh, the white woman being the aggressor in this this, uh, (laughs) action, which is something that uh, you really don't see a whole lot of today, which is really kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, what you're what you're pinpointing there is part of what's really interesting to me, right? It seems to me that one of the big themes of the play is to have us think about who is a victimizer, who is even a murderer versus who is simply labeled as criminals. And that's what the play has you think about, the the, the degree to which black men are so often criminalized then and now, um, and what is the reality of who uh, ends up hurt in this society. I mean, one of the things that I have to admit, though, of course, is that it does seem to me that Clay and Lula, um, when we read the play, we have to read them as, you know, 
a black man and a white woman, but we also have to read Lula as the United States more generally, and what is the country's relationship to black men. It seems to me that you have to read on both of those levels, which is why this play has always been for me a kind of riddle. <laughs> um, you know, how do I make sense of this encounter that they're having? How realistic does it seem that they would have this kind of honest conversation? And then when I get to those moments when I'm wondering how realistic it is, I have to wonder, okay, uh, is this intended to be realistic as in one person to another, or is it more realistic when we think about the nation's relationship to black men? So that's part of what I like about it. Do you think it was a, a political statement on his part? Because so often what's been, uh, what has been uh, propagandized is the black male being the aggressor, uh, um, taking or trying to become sexually involved with a white woman because they always want the white woman and could this be a political statement by turning that on its heels Absolutely. I mean, that's part of what the black power movement, or I should say in this instance, the black arts movement was very much about in the hands of black male writers, especially. They were interested in this question of, as the play puts it, manhood. What does manhood look like in the United States? Um, what are you taught to want in the United States? What makes you abnormal if you don't want it? And so this question of desiring this white woman goes to the heart of that. The United States is teaching you you all the time that this is what you should want and any um, move on your part not to want that is supposed to call your manhood into question. So yeah, bl the black power movement, the black arts movement is very much interested in those questions, especially when we look at the male writers. They're looking at how has black manhood been attacked? Now, of course, the, the woman writers of the time period, like Alice Childress comes to mind and her play, Wine in the Wilderness, they're doing slightly different work that actually offers a critique of what black males are doing. But for this play, and the reason I want to bring it back to our attention, it's very much that question of what is manhood and what is black manhood in a society that so often doesn't want to see black men be men on their own, on their own terms. If you're just joining us, we're with Professor Caritha Mitchell, and we're doing our monthly Black Lit Radio segment, and we're talking about the play Dutchman by Amiri Baraka. Now, the play also calls into question the amount of time and energy African Americans put into our cultural expressions and whether or not that is a good investment of time and whether or not we should actually be less emotional, less expressive, and more... Um, for the play, uh, main character, Clay, more like white people, more rational and less emotional. Interesting. Well, for me, uh, I love the fact that you phrased it in that way. For me, what's interesting about those questions is the way that um, it brings into question the blues. What has the blues meant, right? So Clay has that wonderful moment when he says, well, Bessie Smith wouldn't have needed the blues if she had just killed a white person. Uh, so that, for me, is an important way to try to think about what is the riddle that Amiri Baraka is giving us? What is the puzzle that he wants? wants to figure wants us to figure out as it relates to black people's expression what are we allowed to express and what are we not allowed to express and that's part of why it rings so true for me now in 2012 because there's a certain way in which you can't ever express anger or you're automatically dismissed as somehow irrational so the fact that clay as this very middle class black male character who does everything right he's preppy he's educated he's everything 
everything he's supposed to be, um, and yet there is an underlying um, understanding on his part that he is not going to be taken seriously if he ever allows himself to be anything other than unemotional. Um, so, yeah, the, the relationship to art as it relates to the blues seems important. And then, of course, there's always this um, commentary. The play is having a commentary about playwriting and the theater more generally, right? So uh, Lula is constantly talking about, I told you I wasn't an actress, but I also told you that I always lie. So Baraka is playing with this question of what is performance only? What is the truth relate in relationship to performance? And those kinds of questions um, prove really fruitful here. The other thing I want to add um, is that Amiri Baraka is, is still alive. He's still producing art, um, both theater as well as poetry. And I definitely want to make sure that listeners know that there are, there's a lot of material from him and about him on YouTube even. So he's very much an active artist even today. How do you think uh, the differences are between the way maybe students in college would have reacted to this play, Black Students in College, back in 1964, as the way they react today? That's interesting. Um, it seems to me, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to bring him up is because I think that more and more we're getting away from the kind of boldness that he articulates here. So I think that not as many students are encountering him now as I personally think they should. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is, and, and he has said this in interviews, right, in 1964 when this was produced, he actually won an Obie Award, so an off-Broadway award. But he also says that the moment that the play went from kind of the off-Broadway um, commercial stage and went into Harlem theaters, all of a sudden he was called a racist. So as long as it seemed only intellectual kind of questioning of what America is to black men, as long as it just seemed intellectual, it was okay. The moment it moved to Harlem and it was started to um, be interpreted as a real message to black people to either arm yourself or harm yourself, then all of a sudden he was shunned by the mainstream establishment. So the fact that this same play with the exact same words, the exact same characters could be held as high art when it's on Broadway or off Broadway and then be held as racist violence when it goes to black audiences is something for us to really think about. Professor Caritha Mitchell, a professor of literature at Ohio State University. And what is, uh, how can people find you on the web? I guess the best way to find me is Caritha, K-O-R-I-T-H-A dot blogspot dot com. And that is uh, my main critical commentary blog. And from there, people will be able to link to all kinds of other things. Thanks for bringing us Black Lit Radio this month. Thanks so much. Lonnie Stuckey is a student at the Kip Journey School in Columbus, Ohio, and was the winner of the first Writer's Talk Kip Journey School contest, which was organized by Kip teacher Greg Davis. Congratulations, Lonnie. And here's his essay. My essay is called This I Believe, and I am Lonnie Stuckey. 
I believe that true heroes are not recognized like they should be, or they get punished for the right thing. Martin Luther King was the best African-American person you could rely on to stand up for your rights and beliefs. He was my grandma's and aunt's idol back then. I can relate to why he did what he did. The laws he fought for were terrible and unfair. MLK was really brave and fought for our freedom of rights. He even ended up dying for what he believed in. He was a huge hero, but not every hero gets recognized like he's been recognized. In my belief, there are many kinds of heroes that should stand in front of you every day of your life, such as moms, dads, grandparents, teachers, friends, coaches, soldiers. And let's not forget yourself. I believe that heroes should always be a way to acknowledge these heroes for all their achievements by finishing what they started and giving back to the community. One type of hero that doesn't always get recognized is soldiers. They show leadership and bravery, continuing to guard people while they sleep. They risk their lives for our country so that others can live their dreams. This is why I think heroes should get recognized. We need to step up and show thanks and to repay them for all the stress, dying, and killing they experienced while serving in wars like Iraq for months and years. They are known to fight with courage, without fear of death. They destroy an enemy within a blink of an eye. They fight using their own body strength, yet many of them go unknown and are buried in unmarked graves. Another hero who isn't recognized by the general public is my mom. She is the strongest and bravest person I've ever seen. She is a hero to me and to others as well. She has given back to the community for many years. She travels around mentoring and helping kids that are in juvenile detention centers and having trouble with their family life. I am very proud of her drive and achievements throughout this time period. She once owned an organization called Project for Life. This organization gathered small groups of people and kids when they were young and going through difficult times and helped them meet their goals in education and other efforts in life. She has helped many but not been publicly recognized for all that she has done. Finally, I also see myself as a hero. I believe I am a hero because I am a person who wants to make positive impressions on others and bring positive change for the future. What I do is travel around with some of my church friends and give other kids life lessons and read them scriptures to think about. I am also an actor and writer. I enjoy performing and writing these things that talk about good behaviors and manners. I also like giving life lessons through my music. Each of these things makes it possible for me to help others improve in their own happiness. I want to make a difference in the world and be a hero that will be recognized. A true hero does not have to be a superstar. They just need to be a leader in their own words and actions. They should be a role model that can lead a good group of people. Someone that does not care about money and fame. That would be a leader I would want to be and that is the sort of leader I will be. I believe a hero can change the world and their community as well. They don't have to be rich and don't have to be famous to do the right thing for our world. Even though a person may never receive recognition from many or others, I believe heroes don't always have to be noticed. They just need to believe what they are fighting for is honest and true and good for all humanity. And now my discussion with recent Thurber House guest Chris Pavoni and his novel The Expats. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Chris Pavoni. Hi. Hi. Your novel, The Expats, has garnered excellent reviews. You have a cover blurb from USA Today that describes it as, quote, a pulse-pounding spy novel mixed with a delicate dissection of a marriage. 
So it's the story of a married American couple who have secrets who moved to Luxembourg. Since you and your family moved to Luxembourg for a year and a half, tell me about the impulse to start writing the novel. When did you begin to decide you wanted to dissect marriages? <laughs> I never really decided I wanted to dissect <laughs> marriages. That's just what ended up happening. Um, I was an expat in Luxembourg because my wife got a job offer there. And so I became what's called a trailing spouse, which is somebody who accompanies their partner abroad uh, for that other person to have an exciting or lucrative or career-advancing job. Um, but the trailing spouse is traditionally somebody who doesn't get a job, um, doesn't necessarily have a work permit, um, and isn't in a place that's geared toward whatever it is that they used to do. So trailing spouses become stay-at-home parents by, uh, by necessity. And that's what I did after being a book editor for nearly two decades. We left New York City, and I moved to Luxembourg and found myself in a situation where my wife uh, worked all the time and was often traveling and had very late nights on conference calls. And I was, for the first time in my life, at home with my two small children who are twins. They were four and a half at the time. Um, and while she went to an office every day, all day, all night, I hung out with these kids lying on the floor, playing with Lego, um, doing laundry all the time, buying groceries, cooking, all the stuff that homemakers do, which I had never really done. I was 40 years old at this point, and I found the change just stunning, not just the change from living in New York to living in Luxembourg, but the change from being somebody who had a job and a career, and in, in large part, I defined myself in a lot of ways by my career, and I no longer had one, and I no longer was the person I'd been for all of my adult life. I was somebody else, but I didn't really know who that somebody was. And so I started writing about this, and uh, I changed the protagonist to be a woman instead of me, because I didn't want to write a book about sexual politics, really. Um, I wanted to write a book about this universal thing of, of trying to make a new you once you've decided to be home with children. And so that's how it began. Okay. Now, in an interview with the Columbus Dispatch, you mentioned that you, quote, started writing about the expat life, but I realized I was writing about grocery shopping and such and realized <laughs> yeah. I was writing a boring book. Now, to me, that sounds like the grocery shopping and all that is connected to your time as an editor of cookbooks. Right. Or were you thinking of writing about a blog about the daily life of a trailing spouse? Tell me about the beginnings of the book in, in those terms. Well, I did have a blog for a while uh, whose main purpose was not the writing, but as a way of keeping in touch with friends and writing letters. But instead of writing one letter or one email at a time, I was writing, you know, an email to hundreds of people. That's the beauty of a blog that's mostly meant for private consumption. Um, and there are parts of living in a, a, a European capital that really did appeal to me. It was immensely fun in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I really loved about it was the cooking and the, the farm farmer's market in the middle of town, which was just a couple of blocks from our apartment, and going to the cheesemonger and the, the butcher and the fish, fish store were all separate places, and in each place we went, the women at the cashier, there were always women at the, the, the cash desks were always giving either sausage pieces to my children or candies, both of which they loved. Um, and I... I have to admit that that was 
the the expat fantasy of living in a European capital and walking around with your baguette really is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And having your children get free food just by wandering around the city square. Yeah. You grew up in New York City, and I'm curious what kind of impact you see that having on the way that you described scenes or details in your book, particularly the streets of Luxembourg, maybe as reflected through a New Yorker's eyes. Well, New York is a giant place, and I'm never more aware of that than when I go to other cities, Um, and especially in in Europe, where there there are a lot of famous cities. But as it turns out, once you're there, they're not nearly as big as you imagine if you're if you're from a really huge one. And London is very very big, and uh, Paris is big. Luxembourg um, is not, and it struck me as an immensely tiny little town in the overall scheme of things. And there's, for example, there's no, there's no subway, um, and there, there are no bad neighborhoods. Um, there's none of the stuff that you get in, in a city. And there is a very fledgling little university, but um, people don't really go there. And so that means that almost there's no youth culture. There are no 20-year-old people. Um, it's a it's a very unusual place. And looking at it from a New York point of view, uh, where we have, I think, uh, sort of everything here, and you can get anything you want whenever you want it, and whatever type of neighborhood or whatever type of food you want to be in, you can find that very easily. And in Luxembourg, that's really not true. You can find um, many, many things that you want. And uh, it, I spent a great deal of my time in Europe walking the streets of cities and walking the streets of Luxembourg, where we live, but we also traveled a great deal. And a lot of that ends up being the atmosphere that's in the expats, but the more I walked Luxembourg, the more I realized after a few months that I'd really seen the whole thing of it, okay. which you can't do in a big city. Right. What was it that you missed, just some of the specific things that weren't available in Luxembourg, that were available in New York? <laughs> well, the main thing I missed was uh, the beauty of being able to pick up the telephone and call any one of hundreds of different vendors and have basically any type of food you want delivered to your front door within a half an hour at a reasonable price. Um, that's something that I really come to rely on. And I love to cook. I just don't love to cook all the time. And in Luxembourg, there is no such thing as ordering in food. I tried it once. There was an Indian place about a mile away that supposedly delivered. They didn't start taking orders until 7 o'clock in the evening because why would you? Um, and then, so I... I placed my order at exactly seven o'clock and I waited and I waited and I waited and the food showed up at nine, by which point my, I had to put my children to bed after feeding them like waffles or whatever I had on hand. I was hoping to feed them Indian food. But the problem I was looking to solve, which was that I was tired of cooking all the time to feed these children and myself, was not solved by the Indian sort of non-delivery option. Um, and it's that that I, I missed all the time in Luxembourg. They, what, what I do here when I simply don't want to cook or do anything is just pick up the phone and have great dumplings in my apartment in 15 minutes for, you know, $5. Okay. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about food. And um, <laughs> so tell me, uh, you got to involve food into the writing and clearly uh, it was important. But tell me about the other 
things that you found surprising from going from working in a publishing house to working in a publishing house, uh, working with a publishing house as an author? You know, you've gone from cookbooks to maybe some things in the book about, about food, but what else has really been a standout for you in that transition? Well, the shocking thing to me, just from uh, being an author as opposed to being an editor, is I, I never really focused on how much time and effort authors put into the revision process and how long it takes. There was always sort of a moment when I send off my, my comments and suggestions to an author of things that they should do to a manuscript and expect it back in six weeks or three months or six months or however long it was going to take, depending on the level of work but I was never really focused on what they were doing during that time. And after writing the expats, and I'm, I'm well along the way to finishing another a manuscript of a thriller now, I see that this revision process is in large part what writing is in a lot of ways. Just like um, if you're a cook in the kitchen, but you don't wash dishes, then you're not really doing the whole thing. Washing dishes is a large part of cooking, and revising appears to be a huge part of writing novels. Or maybe it's not for people who are immensely good at it, but uh, as I'm still learning how to do it, I'm revising takes much more time than the original writing. So how does this affect your approach to your own editor? Um, Do you feel like uh, the person just doesn't understand uh, or do you feel more sympathetic toward the editor? How does that, that work for you when you represent I'm very it? sympathetic toward the editor. And <laughs> I know what the editor wants, and I know what the editor doesn't want. And there are so many things that an author can do or say or ways of behaving that are not productive to making the book better, making the publishing process smoother, that all sorts of problems that uh, editors have to face with authors who don't know how they get solved. And since I know what in, is involved in the editor solving problems, problems like if it, somebody shows me an ad that, they, that they're placing somewhere and um, invites my comments on whether, whether I like the advertisement, I know that the answer is, I love it, don't change a thing. And any <laughs> other answer is not the right answer to that. Any other answer is an immense challenge for an editor to, to go back to an advertising, marketing, creative department and say the author doesn't like this. That That's just such a huge headache that I know isn't actually going to do any good. Even if the ad is something which I didn't actually have to face, but even if the ad was something that I thought was totally wrong, nevertheless, it's I would take a take a flyer on that and let them do what they want to do. Okay. I'd like to ask you about your, go a little bit more in depth in your work as an editor, because it seems to me to something that's so integral to writing, as you mentioned, you know, becoming, having the opportunity to edit other people's work, I would think has really, as you said, influenced your own. And uh, did you, you did a lot of editing with uh, cookbooks and food. Now, did you choose to work specifically in that area because you had a previous interest in food? Is it just you you fell into the area because it was something that was open? How does one decide that that's going to be your area of specialty? Well, it wasn't at first. I I did a lot of different things. And um, over time, my interest in the cookbook field grew and I, I became more experienced and I got better at uh, not only fixing cookbooks and, and making them better, but in acquiring the manuscripts in the first place and choosing what to publish. And 
I started doing this because I thought the cookbook world, as I was witnessing it, this is about 15 years ago, sort of uh, really growing in popularity and cookbook sections expanding. And it seemed to me to be a very refreshing category in which it was often the best books that sold the best. And that's not necessarily true in a lot of other publishing categories. And uh, a lot of a lot of it is about things not necessarily related to the quality of the book itself and the expertise of the author. And I found the cookbook part very straightforward, that good books about interesting subjects sold decently and well enough to to make it a worthwhile endeavor. And it was sort of clear what that was and how a book was good and how a book was bad and when what what it should look like in, in its design and its its photography and uh, and so its straightforwardness appealed to me. So over the years, I did more and more cookbooks and fewer and fewer other things. But even at my most sort of prolific stage of my cookbook career, it was still never more than about half of what I did were cookbooks, and the other half were other nonfiction areas. I was never a fiction editor, though. Why not? Um, I think that's one of the, the main decisions that a lot of people make when they're editors, is whether to be a fiction editor or to not be a fiction editor. And I, I think I probably didn't want to be a fiction editor because I wanted to write it. Okay. So that would keep you from being overly influenced by the people you worked with, or what was your fear? I think my fear is that uh, it it ends up looking like you were doing all the editing in order to write in the first place, mm-hmm. and not the other way around, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted my career as an editor to be a career as an editor and not a career as an aspiring writer who was trying to get something else accomplished. And I knew that eventually I wanted to write fiction, but I didn't want it eventually to be seen that I had done all the editing, uh, structured a whole career as a book editor solely for the purposes of becoming a novelist. Chris Pavuni, I thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk, and you have a great day. Thank you. You too.